guys. Bow heads. <laughs> Dear Heavenly Father, thank you once again <clears throat> for this privilege of gathering together as family. Thank you for making days like this a reality for all of us to just sit back and relax and to fellowship together, be encouraged by each other's faith, Father, faith that you've given us by grace. May we never become familiar with all the grace that you've given us in our lives, Father. It's just abundant. It overflows along with your abundant comfort in this world. Uh, we are under immense pressure nowadays, Father. You know this better than we. And we're just so grateful that you give us the ability to survive it, to persevere, and even come out on top uh, as victors in Christ. We pray for those that can't be with us this morning. As members of the congregation, our hearts go out to other members. We earnestly desire them to be with us someday soon, Father. We pray for that. Your will be done, of course. We also pray for those that we may not know, or maybe we do know, that are still lost, Father. That before it's too late, you humble them and they repent and receive saving faith, Father. We are most grateful and thankful, of course, for the vehicle to all of that, which is your son's work on the cross. We do just ask for your blessings on this morning's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, Deceitfulness of Sin, part 43. Uh, here are my notes. I just have the word joy. Joy. What about it? I see some smiling faces, some contentedness in your faces. That's always good to see. Hopefully it's not just the good weather. Hopefully it's that you're going to receive uh, the Word of God implanted to your soul. So what about joy? And what is it really? Really, what is joy? That's a fair question because I think we throw around words like joy and happiness and we don't um, always step back and look at the definitions, and we had some good lessons on that, uh, on how to sort of go into Holy Scripture and seek out core definitions to our own benefit. So joy is on the table. It's been on the table all week. What is it really, and why do so many people seem to be missing it? The answer to that last question in brief, is that they are misguided. Maybe by others. Maybe by the deceitfulness of their own sinful flesh. Go to Romans 14, 17. <clears throat> it's a fair question. What is it? And why do so many people seem to be missing it? And the brief answer, of course, is that they are misguided. Maybe by others. Maybe they've been uh, lied to and they're sort of coming out of a rut. Some of you are in that boat. Some of you spent years and years in false religion. And it still has sort of its tendrils in your soul. And you don't realize it until the Spirit turns on the lights and you say, geez, I didn't even know that was there. And because you had taken it on as false data in your own soul and lived by it, um, the deceitfulness of all of it is part of your own sinful flesh uh, deceiving you, misguiding you. And so we can't, we often don't look beyond ourselves to find these answers. Romans 4, and you know, like, why am I not 
filled with joy. Why do I not rejoice always the way the Bible teaches? Why do I have any miser misery in my life at all? Romans 14, 17, For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking. So in other words, the, spirit, the spiritual pinnacle isn't about temporal enjoyment. Now there's a context there, but that's what we can grab out of that this morning for our own purposes. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking. Some of you think it is. Some of you live for food and drink. Um, or other forms of enjoyment, temporal forms of enjoyment. I don't know. You name it. Vacations, trips, um, movies, you name it. Uh, experiences, temporal experiences. But that's not the kingdom of God, and that's not how we're supposed to think about the kingdom of God. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy. There it is, and joy in the Holy Spirit. And we're going to see a little bit more about being in the Holy Spirit, which is really the same thing as being in Christ, because He is the Spirit of Christ. That's what the kingdom of God is, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. That's what it means to be in the kingdom of God, in knowing it and realizing it and abiding in it and living in it. So this has been the perspective the Spirit's been trying to impart to us on the topic of joy as of late. Let's look at some additional scripture now. Go to Romans 15, 13. Romans 15, verse 13. Verse 13 reads, Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing a la the filling of the Holy Spirit. We could say that that's really what's going on, the filling of the Spirit. Ephesians 5, Colossians 3, of course, are in view. So now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. How about go back to Romans 12, 10. <clears throat> Romans 12, verse 10. We're just surveying Holy Scripture at the outset here to understand what is joy, get us situated. Romans 12, verse 10, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. And when, I'm, when we're reading these passages, I want you to think about joy as um, a function of the sphere of all that we're reading. If you understand, it's not, it's, not an, it's not a singular end goal. It's not do this like, you know, religion teaches. It's not do this and you'll be happy or joyful. It's, it's an estate. It's a state of being in the midst of all that we're reading here in Holy Scripture. That's how you have to think about what real joy is. It's, it doesn't matter what circumstances are. It doesn't matter where you just came from. You don't get launched out of some functional thing or something that you've done into joy. You experience joy. It's an experiential reality when you're in the sphere of God, in the presence of God, and you know it, and you live it, and you abide in it. That's what joy looks like. doesn't even mean you have to be smiling. But here's more. Verse 10, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. 
not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. That's a lot going on. You see all that? Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor, not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope. You see, this is all part of it. Rejoicing's root word, by the way, of course, is joy. Rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer. So much of the past year has been talked about in regards to prayer. Persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Whew, that's a lot in four verses. I was telling my mom yesterday that I can't recall. This is, this is the God's honest truth. I'm not even just doing this for punctuation. I was telling her that I can't recall a single person, Now I'm going to be 50 here shortly, a single person that I've ever met that was truly living for others that was miserable. Honestly, I can't think of anybody. It's a short list. Not many people live for others, truly live for others. Most people in America are literally groomed to live for self. Um... But not a single person that I've ever met that truly lives for others is miserable. Not one that I can even think of. And, you know, she got to thinking about the same thing, and she agreed. And she's like 100 almost. <laughs> she had me late in life, if it's not obvious. That's why I have, like, certain problems. So you got a, you know, like a 50-year-old and a 100-year-old agreeing to this thing. Now, why is that true? Now, you can think about that in your own life. Think about the person or people that you know that truly, not in word, not this lip service thing, I mean truly, in their heart, live for others. And you'll find that they're really not miserable. Matter of fact, they're among the most joyous. They're the ones who somehow, some way, through thick and thin, they, they have a joy set before them. It's amazing. And then on the other end of the spectrum is, guess what? People who totally live for themselves, they are by far the most miserable people I know. Hands down. Every single time, people who live for themselves are the most miserable people I've ever known. People who live for others, the exact opposite. Literally, the exact opposite. Even when certain pain is inevitable, you know, for like example, a certain temporal pain or suffering, these people retain their joy. They may not be smiling. I mean, some of them are physically ill. Some of them have the biggest jackasses for family members you can possibly imagine. Some of them have been discriminated against. I think of a lot of uh, uh, black folks that I know that I've been close with, discriminated against. I'm not saying they're the only ones who receive discrimination, so don't get all weird on me. But how in the world do some people who are discriminated against survive and have a joy 
greater than the ones who are discriminating against them. How is it the ones that are discriminating are miserable wretches and the ones being discriminated against have joy? Imagine that. It's called God. It's called truth that sets you free. This world, this, this life that you're living is temporal. It's, it's temporary. It's not the things in it, they don't even matter. The stuff, that, the stuff that you probably spent this past week stressing over means absolutely nothing. The only difference between you and the person who's not miserable, who has a joy set before them, is they know the difference. Somehow they received and accepted in humility a certain wisdom from the Lord of God, and God imparted it to them, to their benefit. And now they're set free from the things many of you still suffer and stress out over. What are you so stressed out over about? Like, seriously, what is it that you're stressed out about? So when you think about this kind of joy, could this possibly be one of the greatest gifts in time for a believer? I mean, the greatest Go to James 1, verse 2. James 1, verse 2. You might read this. If you weren't a Christian and you read this, this you'd be like, who's this James guy? And who, the audacity of him. Look at the audacity of this guy. Who wrote this? James 1, verse 2. James 1, verse 2. Consider it all joy. There's our word again. Consider it all joy. That's not a mistake. It's not a typo. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Yeah. Isn't that awesome? So even through trial and tribulation, you have a joy. God doesn't rob you of that joy. He just says, to glorify my good name in time, I'm going to put the faith that I gave you to the test. So even the angels who are rubbernecking and everyone else around you can see what the grace of God is all about. How about that? And I'll put that faith if it's true faith, to the test. And you will not falter. And guys like Pastor Ed Collins are going to talk about you on a Sunday morning and say, you know what? The people who live for themselves, miserable. People who live for others, joy. And that's how all this stuff coalesces. That's how it all comes together, you see, before you, as a grace gift from God. Let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And then all praise, glory, and honor go to God. For by grace you've been saved, and for by grace, same pattern, you've been delivered. I mean, this is impossible without God, in other words. So in other words, our joy, if we start synthesizing even what we've read so far, our joy is a derivative of all testing of our faith 
because it proves the omnipotent grace of God. It proves the omnipotent grace of God. So then, Paul can write things like he wrote in Philippians 4.4. Go there. Philippians 4, verse 4. When you have the light of truth in front of you, now when you read Philippians 4.4, it makes more sense. Philippians 4, verse 4. Rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Boy, that just sounds so magnificent, doesn't it? But I I imagine it escapes most Christians. They say, yay, you know, and they're like, yay, rejoice. And they'll sing some songs or they'll have some giant band sing it to them. And be like, oh, rejoice in the Lord always, you know. Yay! But then they walk away and they're miserable. Hmm. In the Lord is tantamount. Same thing, basically. To in the Spirit. Since the Spirit is the Spirit of Christ. Right? So when you see in the Lord, or in Christ Jesus, or in the Spirit, it's the same thing. It's the same thing. They have the same mind, the same intentions, the same purposes. These, they're all the same. Let's not complicate it. Let's not get like these wackos do. Some of them with double PhDs behind their name. Oh, no, no. Let's talk about being in the Spirit or in Christ or in the Lord. Why are you so miserable, you jackass? Spend too much time in the books? Haven't you read Ecclesiastes 12.12? That's wearying to the soul? Get your nose out of the book. Try living this stuff. Try understanding it. Stop trying to complicate it so that you have a purpose in life. So that your intellectualism can somehow percolate to the top. Stop doing that thing. Or else some guys like me are going to come along and bury your butt. And you're going to have nothing to say about it because I'm going to use this right here. I'm going to use the words of Jesus. Why didn't Jesus talk? Why didn't Jesus pontificate and use giant multisyllabic words that don't even exist in the Bible? Why didn't he try to beat people down into submission and make them even more miserable? Tell them that, hey, you know what? You're not even smart enough to read the Bible. What does that say to you? Hey, you need to focus more on yourself, by the way. Your inabilities. You better go take some reading classes. You better go get some, I don't know, whatever it is you need to do. But focus on yourself when you're when you're reading the Bible and focus on the fact that I'm way smarter than you and focus on the fact and focus on you and focus on you and focus on you and then magically you'll be delivered. Wrong. Wrong. Focus on others. It's more blessed to give than to receive. Lay down your life for others. That's what true love looks like. Not focusing on yourself. Don't you understand that method that people, that the devil uses in this world, even from behind pulpits? to tell you that you're stupid and you're unqualified, there's a whole religion that surrounds us right now that doesn't let their own congregants read the Bible. It even speaks in Latin so that they're too, they feel stupid. It's all on purpose because it's actually satanic. Let me in a roundabout way prove to you that you need to spend more time on you to better yourself. Because you're too stupid, you see. Now, you are stupid. Don't get me wrong. But it's not the kind of stupid they're talking about. It's about being stupid before God. 
not before man or some religion. It's about being humbled and brought to your knees by the holy God of the universe. That's very different. Anyways, getting back to it, you can tell there's a lot in my soul right now stirred up. Um, in the Lord is tantamount to in the Spirit, since the Spirit is the Spirit of Christ. And the Bible says up here on the board, Galatians 5.25, If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. If we live by Him, let us also walk by Him. When we do this, we are supernaturally enabled to rejoice in the Lord always. Philippians 4.4 4. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. If we do this, when we do this thing, we are supernaturally enabled to rejoice in the Lord always. Go to Galatians 5.22 if you don't believe me. If you don't believe me. Walk in the Spirit. Galatians 5.22. I mean, we like to throw around words like joy and love and peace, and everybody wants these things, but it's absolutely amazing that so few people seem to have it. Or at least when they have it, it's fleeting. And I'm talking about believers. Don't be too condemned because this is part of what it means to be sanctified. You show up pretty broken, right? You show up um, pretty much like a moron. I mean, you're grateful that through Jesus Christ, God saved you, elected you, is now going to sanctify you. But you show up like a moron, let's face it. You, you show up, all right, let me use a better word. You show up like an infant, okay? In case that's offensive to you. You show up like an infant, but isn't an infant a moron? I'm just saying. And they're really fleshly. That's the beauty about the infant uh, example. Infants by nature are fleshly. They're like the most self-absorbed, egocentric people on the earth. Gimme, gimme, gimme. If you don't gimme, I cry. Galatians 5.22 But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against these things there is no such law, or there is no law. And what's the second one? Love and then joy. These are fruit of the Spirit. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. That's our encouragement. Why? Because that's where joy is. Being filled with the Holy Spirit endues us with the supernatural, transcendent abilities. In particular, the ability to live a life of joy. Go to Psalm 16, 11. Psalm 16, verse 11. So being filled with the Spirit, that means bearing fruit of the Spirit, because if you're filled with Him, that's His direction. It endues us with supernatural, transcendent abilities. In particular, the ability to live a life of joy. Psalm 16, verse 11. You will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forever. So in your presence. You know, it's funny because we don't talk a lot about the presence of the Lord. 
but it's a powerful perspective to dwell upon, especially when our joy seems fleeting at times. I liken it to being in the room with the Hope Diamond. Everybody know what the Hope Diamond is? like the biggest diamond. If you pivot on one foot from beholding it to not seeing it, your proximity to it hasn't changed, only your perspective. You're no longer beholding it. You're, proxim- you're still there, right? You're still in the presence of the Hope Diamond. It's just like right there now. But you're not beholding it. Likewise, with God, just because we can be led away by the deceitfulness of sin from time to time doesn't mean we aren't still in the very presence of our Lord always. He indwells us after all. It's such a tremendous waste to live in His presence and miss out on the benefits. It's it's a waste. So when... Holy Scripture encourages us with passages like Philippians 4.4, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Or Psalm 16.11b, In your presence is fullness of joy. When the Holy Scripture encourages us this way, what the Spirit's suggesting is that we simply, what, turn around and face the Lord again? I mean, isn't that, and reap the benefits of living in his presence? I mean, isn't that the only difference? If, if the continuum I gave you at the start of class, the miserable person versus the one with joy, if that continuum is bounded by uh, believers in Christ, isn't that the only difference between the two? One is focused on self and is miserable, and one is focused on the Lord and therefore others and has a joy, a transcendent joy. Isn't that the difference? It's not like he says, you know, I'm going you, to, you, you're going to be, in, I'm going to save you, but then I'm going to make you incapable of my joy. You're a child of God if you're saved. He doesn't even, he doesn't want you to turn your back on him. He doesn't want you to turn away from him. He wants you to recognize that you're in his presence, and he wants you to realize all those benefits experientially. And that's really the only difference. That's the beauty about humility. That's the only difference between this person who spends a life of joy and this one who's miserable all the time. One predominates. If you focus on this, you're predominantly miserable. Self, if you're focused on the Lord, you're predominantly rejoicing. That's really the only difference. Throughout the Bible, we encourage this way. Go to Proverbs 17.22. Proverbs 17.22. Don't you think that's like the secret that nobody ever seems to talk about? Like, it's, I mean, if you're miserable, it just means you're probably focused on yourself. That's usually the, the net net of it all is usually you've, you've turned away from the Lord and you started hyper-focusing on yourself. You know, in America, in America we call those our dreams, right? Got to have those dreams, man. Fulfill your dreams. What does that even mean? That sounds like a that sounds like a prison cell to me. I, I actually believe that a lot of people are in prison to their own dreams, their own so-called dreams. Parents put that in their kids. We're awful to our kids, right? Shoot high, son. 
Dream big. Do you hear? Hey, let me, let me sow a little uh, misery in your life before you even have a chance. Proverbs 17, 22, a joyful heart is good medicine, but a broken spirit dries up the bones. A joyful heart is good medicine, but a broken spirit dries up the bones. Go to Psalm 118, 24. Psalm 118, 24. Most Americans I know, men and women nowadays, are living, um, what's the right word? are still on a trajectory that was set when they were young. Let me put it that way. They're still on this trajectory that was set when they were young. There were certain things that happened in their life. They were brought up that way, or they were shamed into being that way. Um, and they haven't, they, haven't, um, they haven't let go yet. They're on this trajectory. They still, they're still trying to prove something to themselves, to their parents, to the world that, you know, they're special or something. I don't know. Um, and it's all bunk. It really is. It's just a, it's a big pile of turd. No, I'm serious. Look back behind you. How much misery have you gone through if you fall into that camp? Look behind you. How much misery have you caused in the lives of others even on your so-called quest to fulfill your dreams? Seriously. That's a fair question. And then you got some schmo, quote-unquote, some social schmo, some outcast who has none of that stuff that you scratched and bit for, none of that, and they have way more joy than you. How in the world does that work? Well, this is what the Bible's teaching us. Psalm 118, 24. This is the day which the Lord has made let us rejoice and be glad in it. Like I said at the start of class, most of your countenances were really joyful looking. Like you were happy to be here. You were ready, you know, like you're sitting before a good meal. You know what I mean? Like you're going to get a good meal. You know you're going to get a good meal here. Um, and, and you were excited and, you, and the spirit was filling you up and you were getting ready. That's what today's about. That's what this means. We're in the presence of the Lord. This is his house. We're in his presence and we're because of the situation, which is one of the beautiful things about a church, you're focused on him. He's got your attention. And that's a beautiful thing about a church, um, like this one anyways, because it allows you to read Psalm 118, 24, and it resonates deep in your soul. And I'm not being emotional, I'm being truthful. It resonates deep in your soul. This is the day which the Lord has made. I'm grateful. How about you? I, I actually walked out of bed this morning. I can't... I probably had a little pain, but whatever. But I walked out of bed, you know, did, did my little routine, came here, and here I stand as a, a vessel. What, are you kidding me? I get to teach the Word of God? You get to listen to the Word of God being taught? I'm going to say it's a good day. Amen? I think this is a, a darn good day. So let us rejoice and be glad in it. You know, if you just get away from your own ridiculous self-centeredness for a moment, so even probably the most self-centered of you in this audience just had a good moment. Like, yeah! That's because you actually forgot about yourself. You know, some of you are already back on it. <laughs> but, you know, because it's like an elastic band. It's like... 
right? <laughs> but for a moment, you tasted what the Spirit's trying to say to you about joy. It's the most amazing thing. Let go of that self-life. Let it go. It literally is the source of your misery. Some of you are like, you don't understand. I spent 20, 30, 40, 50 years working like, you know, like a, like a little uh, woodworker whittling out an idol called your life. I spent all this time investing and look at it. It's like polished and it's, it's like almost there. It's my dream. You see, it's my dream, my life. It's everything I wanted. Yeah, just throw it in the garbage. No way. Yahweh. Because that's the thing that's keeping you in misery. That's the difference between you and the person who has a joy set before them. So, on Thursday, we began with the following quote from an exposition of 1 John by A.W. Pink. I want to give it to you again. I, uh, I apologize about his language. It's just the way they wrote back then. Um... But anyways, A.W. Pink on biblical joy. A word now on the nature of this joy. And that is the more necessary since not a few are apt to naturalize and carnalize the same. Regarding it as a mere spirit of elation or happy feeling of exhilaration. That's his fancy way of saying what I said in the beginning of class. It's not something you just, you know, you do this and you arrive and it's like, well, I have a spiritual high right now. I'm at a high right now. No, joy is like this. Joy is something you get to keep. Instead, it is heavenly grace, a fruit of the Spirit. We just read that. Galatians 5.22 And therefore, something spiritual, supernatural, and divine. God is alike its author, object, and maintainer. You see the sphere? The, ob the author, the object, and the maintainer of this joy. So if you're not enjoying the presence of God, you miss it. More. As the peace which he gives passeth all understanding, Philippians 4, 7, so the joy he communicates is said to be unspeakable, 1 Peter 1, 8. Not only excelling sense, that means it's not just bound to your five senses. This is something you may not be able to put into words. That's what he means by unspeakable. Have you, has anybody, why are you so happy? I, don't, I, I can't explain it. Some of you just say, Jesus loves me. <laughs> you know, this is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. This is as good as it gets for me. I don't, I don't even know. I mean, some of these people that are filled with joy, they're not the, mo they're not the greatest orators or writers or even communicators, many of them. Some of them are, but not all of them are. Some of them can't express, because it's a, like the Bible says, a joy inexpressible. It's unspeakable, 1 Peter 1.8. Not only excelling sense, so don't, you know, don't think of joy as, oh, that feels good, or that smells good, or that looks good. Mm -mm. But beyond full comprehension, it is an elevation of soul after the Lord and of things above. It is a delighting ourselves in God. For since all happiness be the enjoyment of the chief good, then all felicity is bound up in Him. Joy is heaven begun in the saint. For this 
or his blessedness here and hereafter differs not in kind, but only in degree. It is therefore a joy which is pure and unalloyed. How do you, does anybody know how to actually say that? Unalloyed? Sean, that's, I'm going to take Sean. Sean's like an English freak. It is therefore a joy which is pure and unalloyed. Did I say it right, Sean? As spiritual love is far more than a sentimental, as God's peace is more excellent than mere placidity or tranquility of mind, so the joy which Christ imparts to the believer is vastly superior to any natural emotion. Don't you remember like a week or so ago? Get, you know, this is not about, you know, you can actually idolize your feelings. That's not even joy. We don't even just settle on our feelings about God. It's not a natural emotion, even. This is a transcendent thing up here on the board. It is a state. It is a state of exaltation, a complacence of heart, a full satisfaction of soul as it feasts upon a perfect object. Divine joy is a special gift, then. That's what the Spirit's been saying. It's a special gift given to those who experience the presence of God in their lives. Who experience the presence of God in their lives. When you live this way, which really can be described as unadulterated fellowship with the Lord, then Paul's precious words begin to make more sense. Go to Romans 12.1. Romans 12.1. Romans 12.1 Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice. You know, if you're, if you're, in the, if you're experiencing the very presence of God, don't you just want to like be with Him all the more? Don't you just want to worship Him? Don't you just say, I'm yours. This is great. I mean, I used to live in misery all the time. This is great. I'm going to stay with you. My bet's on you. Because where I just came from, those bets never panned out. I hedged every bet. I was really good at it. And you're speaking to someone who was really good at life before truth. I think that's why he puts guys like me up here. I had that thing nailed. Nailed. And now I look back and I go, what the hell? No, for real. Like, what the hell? What, what was I doing? Who was I living for? And why did I have a certain misery that I could not shake? What was the problem? I wasn't laying down my life for the Lord, obviously. I didn't trust him. Maybe I didn't want him. At the time. So Paul wrote, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice. That means every bit of you. Acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. And this is what just is in my notes up here on the board. Then, then okay, glory be to God. <laughs> what else do you do? 
If this is the end goal of living today, then glory be to God. God is glorified when we reap the fruit of the Spirit. For example, love, joy, peace, as we read in Galatians 5, 22 and 23. God is glorified. What's the one word that precedes joy? Love. What's the fulfillment of the whole law? Love. How do you abide in the sphere of God's grace? You love others. You live for others. You love God. Love, as I've taught you in the past, is the tie that binds us all together. That's why Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 13, the greatest of these, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest is love. God is glorified when we reap the fruit of the Spirit. Consider the other great fruit of the Spirit, the one above all others, and then go to John 13.35. John 13.35. In other words, um, as I've taught in the past, the fruit of the Spirit, it comes as a collective. You understand? It comes as a collective. In other words, if you want joy, then it comes with love. If you want love, then you know what it comes with? Joy. I mean, what gives you greater love than a purely living for others? I mean, what gives you a greater joy than purely living for others because you love them? Even in a temporal sense, even in an earthly sense, if you're a parent, you know what I'm talking about. And I'm not trying to disclude people. I'm just saying that's one really good way to think about it. You love to live for others. You love to be able to provide, to give, to guide, to share wisdom. You love being able to do those things. You know why? Because God says, raise your kids in the faith. Raise them up. Have a stable household. Do whatever is necessary to lead them to Christ. That brings great joy to a godly parent. And that's what it means to lay down your life. And when you lay down your life, just like the Bible says, when you love others more than yourselves, even, you have great joy. You have great joy. John 13, 35. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples. You know, in other words, the whole world's going to see something in you. My Father is going to be glorified by you. You know what it is? If you have love for one another. You are a Christian. You bear my name. You've taken the mantle from me. I'm gone. You've taken the mantle from me. Others are going to see love in you. That's what brings glory to my Father. And that's what I want in all of you. In other words, overt affections are indicators of internal realities. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Overt affections are indicators of internal realities. This is a baseline truth we've discovered over and over in the Bible. And to live a life of loving others, beginning with God, is at the root of abiding in God's joy. Let me say that again. To live a life of loving others, beginning with God, 
is at the root of abiding in God's joy. That is why I said, and why I've said it five times if never this morning, if you're in love with yourself, you're miserable. If you love God first and then others, then you abide in His joy. Is that that difficult? Did I need to browbeat you with giant multisyllabic words? Do I need to impress you into um, abiding in His joy? I hope not. It's actually really simple. It's really, really simple. You know, <laughs> I would be completely out of a job if you guys got it right away. You know what I'm getting at? He'd be like, oh, you're done. So hurry up. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Why did I yell? I don't know. <laughs> Do you know what I'm saying? That would never happen. That was, that's my point. It's never going to happen. Because, you know, people are just stuck with, and they're in love with themselves. Or other creations or other idols. Some of you, you know, come together even in like relationships. And you're, and you're, and you're um, bi-directionally stuck on each other. And Christ is like squeezed out over here. Do you know what I'm saying? And then you wonder why you're both miserable. It's because Christ isn't actually your centerpiece. You're both self-centered, you know, you can fill in the blanks. And a, a lesson like this, a message like this is really saying, that's what you need to stop. That's what, that right there is what needs to stop. Stop loving yourself. Stop putting somebody else even before God. Because that's where misery sits. To live a life of loving others, beginning with God, is at the root of abiding in God's joy. And we talked about this this past week. I used the word preoccupation as sort of an anchor, but I hope you know what the Spirit's getting at. Whatever we are in love with, we will be preoccupied with. And what the Bible basically says, if it's not the Lord, then don't expect the fruit of the Spirit. Don't expect the fullness of it. Don't expect, don't expect, expect to hear and understand a joy set before a person, but it won't resonate with you. You'll be the person who says, I get it, I just don't have it. And that's cool, because that's what humility looks like. That's your starting point. I get it, but I just don't have it yet. I trust God that I will get it at some point, but I have to stay humble. And if the, if the bald guy is reading off Holy Scripture and the, and the Spirit's using him to say, hey, listen, just saying, you're preoccupied with yourself, that's why you're miserable, maybe I should listen. Maybe I should just listen for once in my life. Maybe I should listen to sound wisdom and turn around and face the Lord in humility and repent. Because you're going to have to repent from that, by the way. That's what that means. You don't have to repent from that thing. You're going to confess it to the Lord. Because if you don't confess that as a sinful lifestyle, you're never going to be delivered from it. You'll probably try to keep, you know, keep one hand on that and try to somehow grab for the Lord. People do that all the time. You know, it's not about this. A lot of times, so much of what we do here over the past decade has been, like I've said, subtraction. Here's your hand, and he's just going like this. Pick the finger up, and you white not all my knuckles are white. Pick your fingers up. Let's let go of that thing, and then you'll be free. 
preoccupation. Whatever we are in love with, we will be preoccupied with. And as I said on Thursday evening, preoccupation is a big word. This is just food for thought. Have you ever noticed that the things we are preoccupied with tend to demand our attention, even if and when we want nothing more than to turn it off? You ever notice that? In other words, if you spend a life loving yourself, it's really hard to turn that off. And pretty much at every turn, you know, you can be driving down the road and be like, yeah, you know, and, re- and maybe you really are singing as under the Lord, you know, this time. Mm, you know, whatever, whatever. And, oh, there's the such and such shop. Oh, there's so-and-so's house. Oh, oh there's the, I don't know, liquor store. Or there's the whatever is going to turn you away. That love is sticky. That love, that preoccupation that you've lived with for years has a certain stickiness to it. So preoccupation is a big word because love is a big word. So it's really a double-edged sword. If we love the Lord, we can't help but want to be with Him, to rejoice always in His presence. However, if we turn our backs on Him towards self or little gods and idols, we want to be in the presence of evil. That's, the, that's what the Bible tells us. The solution is simple, as we've been noting up here on the board, Colossians 3.2 reads, Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. In verse 17, Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through Him to God the Father. Do all that you do. And I, I borrowed this from MacArthur. I'll give it to you again as a balanced statement. So you don't become to condemn, because none of us do this perfectly. Even Paul admitted it in Romans 7. He didn't do it perfect. He wanted to. He wanted to keep 100% of the time, like Jesus, on things above. He wanted to have a joy set before him, a completely unflappable joy set before him. But who can claim that? Who can claim they've never had any misery in their life? Some of you are like, my life? How in the last hour? Right? How about you know? How about someone ate all the uh, the deviled eggs back there? How about that? So don't be too hard on yourself. MacArthur says this. I like it. It's about direction, not perfection. We're not going to be perfected until what theologians would call ultimate sanctification, which means we're sitting in heaven with God. That's the end goal, but we don't have it right now. So it's about direction. It's about getting up, walking forward. If we turn and face God, we will be persecuted by the world, but blessed by Him. If we turn away from God, we will be, quote, blessed by the world, but cursed by God. Those are your options. You want to walk towards self? Misery. You want to walk towards God? Blessing. Joy. That's how it goes. Those are our four options. So, if on this fine day that the Lord has made, you find yourself on the miserable side of things, and some of you are, I know you are, because you tell me. Here's some perspective for you. What is misery's root? God will ordain misery, but He does not desire it for His children, ultimately speaking. You may say, all right, this person needs to learn a lesson, so I'm going to let it ride, and they're going to be 
you know, moaning and I'm going to get ridiculous prayers and all this kind of stuff. But that's cool. <laughs> but that's not what he wants for you. That's not what he wants for you. Misery is fruit of human flesh. That traces all the way back to the garden, of course. You may be in general miserable, but the root cause is often one or two specific areas of sin you persist knowingly in. The Bible te- I'm not going to get into that, but the Bible teaches that, you know, to whom much is given, much is required. So if you know better and you persist, you will be miserable. You will be miserable because you know better. And the Holy Spirit's not like that. The Holy Spirit doesn't just give up. He's going to convict you. On Thursday, the Spirit had me bring up everyone's favorite topic, dating. Some of you laugh, so I can't. I, in, in truth, it probably is maybe your favorite topic. I don't know. Maybe you've overcome it. Maybe you just think it's comical. I don't know. But I usually get some funny looks when I start teaching on anything to do with relationships or dating or even marriage. That's the other big one. Um, but it is what it is. Essentially, the Spirit said, stop it. Every aspect of it. Because, let's face it, American dating really is this way, right? It's, I like me. I want what my flesh wants. So I'm going to focus on my, the lusts in my own flesh. I'm going to focus on my desires for someone of the opposite sex. And so that's what I'm going to focus on. So what do you end up with? Misery. Misery. Some of you are like, I don't know, I'm kind of happy right now. Yet yeah, now, Chinese food, right? Half an hour later, your soul's in tatters again. So what does the Spirit say? Just stop it. Every aspect of it. Stop playing the game like it's a game you can win because you can't. Why stop it? Because that is tantamount to turning away from the Lord. It's the same as turning away from the Lord. That's why. This turning away, in practical terms, boils down to one word. Any, any betters? Disobedience. That's it. I mean, dating is just one perversion in this world. It seems to be a favorite, I think, for obvious reasons, because sexual sins are, have to be... I honestly think they're bigger than money. I think sexual sins are the the one that catches most people. That's my personal opinion. My opinion doesn't mean anything, but those are my experiences and my understanding having lived in this world, uh, especially in America, because everything is sold through sex. But anyways, this turning away, in practical terms, boils down to one word. It's disobedience. I mean, not to state what should be obvious, we don't pirouette on one foot physically speaking, in order to turn away from him. All of this occurs in the soul when we disobey. This is about what goes on in the soul. Up here on the board, James 4.8. It's not even about the person you might be obsessed with or the romance. It's about you. That's what I'm trying to say. It's about you. There's something wrong in you that you feel the need to turn to someone other than the Lord. There's something wrong in you 
that you would ever do that, that you would disobey. When Holy Scripture says, hey, don't turn towards anything in this world. Don't befriend it. Don't do anything with it. Do not do that thing. And so if you disobey, that's literally what you're doing. And at the same time, he says, if you do that thing, in my joy, my love, my peace, all that, that sphere is over here, you are saying, I'm going to choose this. I'm going to choose all the counterfeits, and I'm going to turn away from you. And what does James 4, 8 say? Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. And double-minded, remember, dip sukkos, double-sold. Most Christians are like um, a ping-pong ball or bumper pool. It's like ding, 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 right? Come to church, it's like, I get it, woo, hallelujah, ding. Right? Read your Bible, ding. Go back to work, ding. Read your Bible, go this way. Someone calls you, ooh. As I reiterated on Thursday, American-style dating is absolute garbage. If you want to be miserable, then dating is certainly one of the quickest ways to meet that goal. Seriously, if you want to be miserable, then date. <laughs> it's literally one of the quickest ways to meet that goal. But here's the astounding thing. Why are so called mainstream Christian, quote-unquote, churches, not only refusing to share this specific wisdom, but also encouraging ungodliness among young adults or even budding children in the faith. I can't tell you how many times I've been asked if my church puts on singles nights. I don't even know how to answer that. I don't even answer it. People have given up by now anyway. Usually it happens when you change locations. Someone's like, hey, do you have like mixers? I'm like, mix what? You think I wanna you want I wanna expose my congregation to you? That's that's what you're asking? You wolf. So I can't tell you how many times I've been asked if my church puts on singles nights. I mean, who like seriously, who do these people think I am? Like, remember Chuck Woolery? Remember the love connection? So, yeah, so that's my job. This is the love connection church. This is where you're going to meet the man of your dreams, ladies. Or men, the, 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 I don't know, the woman that you've been dreaming about. But you know what the sick part is? That's not all of it. So-called Christian, quote-unquote, pastors are now expected to do dating counseling to help a person who has completely disobeyed the will of God in the first place by dating so that they can lick their wounds and, you know, get back into the saddle again. Here, let me help you. Let me, let me, let me help heal your wounds. Here, let me help you get back into that saddle. Instead of saying, hey, have you ever stepped back and wondered why you're miserable? Have you, ever, have you ever stepped back and read the Bible on this topic? Have you, and, and some of you parents need to listen up because you 
encourage or continue to encourage it in your own kids to their own misery. There's nothing holy about it. And if you, have, if, if, if you disagree with me, I'd love to have a conversation. You will lose it. But I'd love to have a conversation with you because I'd like to have you set free as well. There's nothing holy at all about American dating. Ask anybody in here who's honest, who's been through it, whether it ended in misery, in regret, or it brought glory to God. That's all we have to do is look back on it. Right? But it's, it's unbelievable that Christian pa- so-called Christian pastors are encouraging this behavior. And this came up on Thursday as well, this phrase, you know, keep your chin up. Stop and ask, for what reason? To look up to heaven awaiting the Lord's return? Or to supposedly, you know, quote, survive your own self-induced misery? You know what? This is going to sound harsh, I guess. But um, I don't want you to survive your self-induced misery. I want you to fall flat on your face. I want it to be painful. I want you to suffer. And I want you to realize what you've done. Right? Christian pastor? No wonder we have a small congregation. I don't want you to um, uh, forget about it. I don't want you to uh, somehow survive your own self-induced misery. I actually want you to understand your own wretchedness and your own misery and how those things come together and why you're miserable in the first place. I really do. I want you to understand those things because those are the things that bring you low. And it's from there, when I'm weak, then I'm strong. When your flesh is pressed down and you finally surrender, I'm talking about believers even, who, you know, Fight the good wrong fight. You know, this thing. I want you to, I, I want your knuckles to bleed. I want you to fall down and skin your, your face. Getting a little overboard now, ain't it? You guys are like, all right, dude, we get the point. Just settle down. I hate sin so bad. You don't understand. It's not about the people. I hate sin so bad. You have, that's my, that's my, oh, I just can't wait to be delivered. I hate it so bad, looking around and just my own flesh. I look in the mirror, it's like, you suck. It's not a regular, everyday thing. <laughs> Probably wearing my family. But you know what I'm getting at? Like, yeah, I should, I should fall down. I should be suffering right now. And I look at people in this world, and I'm like, yeah, I just don't get it. I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't agree with the, with the people who are, you know, the, those tree-hugging types that everything's love. And nobody should suffer ever, and we should just enable people into oblivion so that they can just abide in awful, awful, never-ending misery, and we call it love. I hate that whole thing, because it's evil. It's not the pattern that God set before us for deliverance. He said, you're going to go low. You're going to go way low. You're going to be brought down to your knees. And if it hurts, good. Remember this. Remember where you came from. Remember how you got here, believer. 
Remember how all this transpired? It wasn't because you were arrogant and someone was puffing you up and someone was trying to lick your wounds so you could back in the unholy saddle so you could keep focusing on yourself. So you won't ever hear that from a guy like me. When I say, if I, I've written this before, keep your chin up, I'm not talking about survive your self-induced misery. I mean, look up to heaven. Call on God's mercy and grace and His true love for you. Here's what the Bible has to say about all this garbage. Dating is ungodly, period. Anything that knowingly produces sinfulness in one or more people ought to be avoided. I mean, that's the right thing to do, right? Am I wrong? Because uh, here's what... Here's what James had to say on it. James 4.17. Therefore, to the one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him is a sin. One last thing. Perspective up here on the board. The Lord never says to us, feel free to pass through the depths of sinful behavior to find my joy. He never says that. Feel free. I'll be right at the end of it. No. No. The continuum doesn't like loop around. You don't go through sinfulness and then somehow end up with his joy. He never says that. He says, turn. The word is repent. Confess. Draw near to God. That's the language that's used in the Bible. Not the garbage that comes from the average so-called Christian pulpit nowadays where we lick each other's wounds and call it love. And really what we're doing is enabling the people we so-call love to reside and abide in misery. That's not love at all. That's cowardice. That's evil. That's actually hatred. The Lord never says to us, feel free to pass through the depths of sinful behavior to find my joy. In fact, He says just the opposite. Do not be deceived Galatians 6, verse 7, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever a man sows. This he will also reap. Do not be deceived. What's the title of our 43-part series again? The Deceitfulness of Sin. I hope all this is coming full circle for you. Here's the perspective we need to cling to regarding our thoughts on the topic of dating, or any other cultural norm that encourages us to turn away from God's grace. Up here on the board. Think of your body, which is your life too, as an instrument that God desires to use to His glory. That's what we read in Romans 12.1. You've been purchased with a price. You are an instrument. Your body, your life is an instrument meant to bring glory to God. Romance is a distraction from the pit of hell. I'm not telling you can't be romantic with your spouse. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about that garbage that is peddled in the world. Everything's, you know, romantic. When's the last time you saw a movie, mainstream movie, when there was a love connection? You know what I'm saying, right? That within, let's, let's, be, um, let's be gracious, within... 
two or three nights they didn't sleep together. Honestly, when's the last? It's almost like, oh my God, the stars are even like in the cosmos, right? You know, Star Trek dude and some other chick from Uranus, right? I didn't even know anybody lived there. Oh my God, me neither. Oh my God, let's have sex. And they're in some kind of space bed. And I got to put it, I got to like go, oh my, thinking I'm watching like a Star Trek movie. I'm like, Sean, cover your eyes. This is ridiculous. Sean's like this. I'm kidding. I'm just trying to make you laugh because this makes people uncomfortable. When I say romance, I hope you know what I'm talking about, but it's a distraction from the pit of hell. Absolutely. You know why? Because it encourages ungodly dating. Whoever said, <laughs> all, right, uh, look, all right, you do on your own, in your own time. Ladies, the, the women's Bible study know this cold. How did people get married back in the day? Hey, go over there to that foreign land and get me a wife from good stock. Where's the romance in that? For real. No, for real. Where's the romance in that? Where does it say you got a date? Try before you buy. Where, where's all that? Where's all that garbage? Society. And it's, you know what's funny? It's not even that old. It's not even that old. We think that's the way it's always been. Uh-uh. Go back 100 years, 200 years. What we think of as dating and romance didn't even exist. Didn't even exist. Romance is a distraction from the pit of hell. So there I said it. Some of you are like, I can't believe you said it. I said it. That may stir something offensive in you and I say good. I'll echo what James wrote to those who chose to celebrate evil in the presence of the holy God of the universe. Up here on the board, James 4.9, this is the living Bible. Let there be tears for the wrong things you have done. Go ahead, let it, let you have tears. What's wrong with that? Good. Good. What are you supposed to do? Rejoice? You've been a hoe. What are you supposed to do? Rejoice? <laughs> Go ahead, laugh. I don't care. It is. You know, you know, seriously. You've been living this ungodly life your whole life. What are you supposed to do? You're supposed to rejoice? What's the opposite of rejoicing? If it's that offensive to you, what do you think it is to God? Your, your body is a temple. No other part of anybody else's body besides your spouse should be inside of your body, including a tongue, not to be gross. Making out is intercourse, and it's sexual in nature. You draw the lines. Whoa! Man, it was so placid this morning, too, wasn't it? You guys are like, man, this is like, uh, yeah, love and joy. It's not my fault. I do whatever the Spirit says. Let there be tears for the wrong things you have done. Let there be sorrow and sincere grief. Let there be sadness instead of laughter and gloom instead of joy. Do you see that? Gloom instead of joy. In other words, you don't get the joy. You get something else. You disobey God. You don't get the joy. Is there any, any more translation required? Ask yourselves, was James 
inspired and filled with the Spirit of Christ when he wrote this? Yep. Then why are some of you still, after all this time, rejecting God's wisdom on this topic and others like it? It's not just about dating. That just seems to be one of the favorites here in uh, Americana. Especial. Why are you still rejecting it? It's literally a form of insanity, I think. But then again, all dysfunction is, considering we choose it. Some of you just need to get back to the basics. Really. Just go back to the basics. Simplify your life. For starters, this came up on Thursday. How about worship time? Church should be a much smaller percentage of your overall worship time for the week. If church is the mainstay of your worship, something's awry. If you, in other words, if you spend more time direct fellowship with the Lord in church than you do the whole rest of your week, something's wrong with your spiritual life. That is where your misery is. That's where your misery is coming from. So stop looking around, you know, like, where did that go? Where did my joy go? Stop looking around like you're going to find it on your own. I'm telling you what happened. You lost it when church became the only time you really spend any real fellowship with the Lord. Oh, it's not there anymore. Remember what it said? Instead of joy. You choose something against God, you get no joy. You get something else. You get misery. On Tuesday and Thursday, the Spirit gave us the following to chew on. Good choices. Find quiet time to dwell with God, even if you rise before dark, to just be with Him alone. Scripture says, Psalm 37.3, Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness. In other words, a relationship with God. And I'll close with this. I can't believe how long it's been. You guys are like... <laughs> I can do not be, and I don't mean to offend anybody. I have it, so I can't be offended. Don't be a spiritual ADHD. Do not allow the kingdom of darkness to distract you. Because that's, a lot of us are like, just like that. La, 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 whoa, whoa, I like vanilla, yeah. Oh, oh, I like you, oh. Don't be a spiritual ADHD. Misdirection. This is the very lifeline of the deceitfulness of sin. It was first made evident in the garden with the words, Has God said? To misdirect is to disorient to what is otherwise stable, secure, assured. And here's where we ended on Thursday, and I'm just about ready to end. Yeah, this is where I'm going to end, I think. Flee from distractions. The cure for distraction, a.k.a. spiritual ADHD, is surrender. Surrender. Your whole life, that's what we read in Romans 12.1, right? Your whole life, your spiritual service of worship, give your life to Him. The cure for distraction is surrender. God essentially has said, you just need to submit to my means of salvation and deliverance, and I'll take care of the rest. Flee from it. I will take care for, of the rest. The word flee. You think I borrowed it? What do you think? 
Flee from youthful lusts. That's the whole dating thing. Flee from it. If your weakness is with sex, flee from it. All the more reason to focus on the Lord, to surrender your entire life to Him. Why? Because that's where the joy is. If you disobey what's come from this pulpit, for example, you won't have it. You'll have misery. Those are your options. And that's between you and the Lord. Amen? All right, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for such a wonderful presentation of truth in the Word of God. Father, thank you for truth that sets us free. That is what it's designed to do to bring glory to you, Father. We just ask for your blessings as we, take, as we take the things we've learned out to a lost and dying world, Father, that needs it so desperately. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen.